The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture reading for this morning is Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. If you're using the Bible in the row ahead of you, it can be found on page 764. Once you've found your place, please stand for the reading of God's word. Once again, that's Matthew 9, verses 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvests. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So this morning, we're continuing uh, to march forward. We're entering into a new, I guess you could say, a little three-week sermon series that's not overly new in the sense that it is highly connected to what we've been uh, looking at and studying for the past three weeks. So if you remember the past three weeks, we just called uh, our little sermon series The Missionary Need, and we asked uh, the same kind of question that the disciples asked Jesus Will you teach us how to pray? And Jesus answers that request in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. So we've studied that. Um, We said this is the missionary need. We need to rest on that foundation. But uh, what we're also going to do is see that we don't just stop with praying. Um, We can't uh, do anything. We ought not to march forward without praying, but we don't just merely stop at praying. And so what I want us to see is that on the foundation of the missionary need, I want us to lay the foundation of the missionary mindset. Like, so what does it mean to think and live like a missionary? I want to connect these things together. Um, Starting today, we're going to do that through Matthew chapter 9. And so this morning, from this particular text, what we're going to do is just simply title our sermon this morning, Compassionate Laborers. Um, We pull that directly out of these verses in front of us. And if you wanted to uh, put a single statement, a single idea encapsulating what I think we're going to see from Jesus in these verses, it really comes down to this. main idea is that the missionary mindset of God's people, the the mindset that is to inhabit um, the people of God is this. It's a mindset that prays for compassionate laborers to be sent into the Father's harvest. And as we're going to see here in a little bit, it's as we pray this prayer for compassionate laborers to be sent out into the harvest, we're going to see that we very much are the answer to our own very prayer. And so the missionary mindset, what does that look like? What do we see? How does Jesus model this mindset of a missionary and how does that connect to prayer? What we've been studying for the past couple weeks to pray for compassionate laborers to be sent out into the Father's harvest. So here's my, my, be my encouragement for you right now. Uh, let's pray. And let's pray for the Holy Spirit 
to help us not only grasp these things. There can be a danger with a text like this. Um, These four verses are very familiar verses. Um, Verses that many of us know, and the danger of familiarity, as you've heard me say before, is it can sort of blunt the sharpness of the Word of God, and it can just sort of land on us like water off a duck's back. But my hope is that there is a measure of sharpness here, and that's something the Spirit can provide. He can lay us open with the Word of God. And my hope is that uh, what you're going to hear from me this morning is really going to be uh, a measure of me unpacking, um, exposing what Jesus is saying here in this text in Matthew 9, but I'm going to connect it and lead into the exposition of this text by unpacking for you what Charles and I got to experience in London. Um, Some answers to prayer that we got to see in London for how can we run at lostness here at Delta in a collective way And at the end of the sermon, try to land the plane for you by saying, we really believe, having sought the Lord now for multiple months, the Lord answering prayer in London, what do we see in this text? Then begin to put in front of you, like, we think seeking the Lord, the elders believe, like, this is what it's going to become to look like. Like, how do we actually go and not just be hearers, but doers of the word, and try to put that in front of you, and then just begin to continue to beg God to do a work in and through us as we seek to be laborers in the harvest, okay? So there will be me unpacking some things, exposing us to the text, and going there. Um, I know the temptation of my heart right now is to try to play the part of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I mean by this? Like to speak and just, you know, weave phrases together so that everyone just sort of magically gets it, you know, sort of floats out on a high. Pastor John is, you know, the bee's knees. That sermon was the best thing since sliced bread and isn't, isn't life grand. And I... I I'm being honest, the temptation in my heart is for me to try to play the part of the Holy Spirit, to try to do something in such a way that where you get it. But that is not my role. My role is to be a faithful uh, expositor, to say this is what the Word says and this is what it looks like in our lives and then trust that the Holy Spirit will do what He's very happy and glad to do, which is expose our need for Jesus. Amen? So that's what I'm inviting you into when I pray, when I ask you to pray right now, is pray for your pastor's heart. I'm a Christian like you. I can tend to lean on my own understanding, and I don't want that this morning, but I'm also asking that all of our hearts would be tuned in, that we'd be scooted to the edge of our seat, as it were, because I really think that what we're laying out in front of us today is, uh, my, my Lord willing, is that we'll look back in time and say, man, that was sort of an Ebenezer moment in the life of our church when we looked to the scriptures and the scriptures um, um, identified what we were being called to and we marched forward leaning on God in certain ways. And so my hope is just that, that the Spirit tunes our minds in to hear what we need to hear today so that we just in gladness collapse on Jesus. Um, him reviving our hearts and then awakening the spiritually dead and we get to see a wave of, of harvest pulled into the kingdom as the Lord of the harvest does what only he can do, bring salvation growth, okay? So that was sort of the mini sermon before the sermon, uh, but let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's ask for the Spirit to do what where he delights to do. Father, our aim is to see you magnified. That's what we want. In accord with what Jesus has taught us, our desire is to see your name hallowed, honored, revered, worshiped, praised. We are desiring, we 
long to see your gospel advance, to see your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, we long to see you saving souls. So Holy Spirit, would you tune our hearts and our minds right now to not only grasp these things as true, but to even reorient our hearts and our minds, our wandering hearts, our wandering minds. Our ears can be dull. Our mind can be blunted towards these things. I'm asking you to open our eyes to see Jesus, to open our mind, to understand these scriptures. Holy Spirit, would you do what you love to do, which is grasp us firmly in your grip and bring us to the place where we behold Jesus the Christ. Use me as an instrument. Give me words to speak, clarity of communication. Set me aside, as it were, so that when all is said and done, what we can do is step back and go, man, that, that was the word. It was the Spirit using the word to draw us to see and hear and understand Jesus more fully. And Holy Spirit, would you even begin now to lay tracks in our hearts for obedience, application that makes sense for the seasons of life we're in and where we live, work, eat, sleep, play. God, help me. Help me to lean on you, not lean on myself right now in this moment. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. As I just said, past three weeks, we've been focusing on this idea that we, we laid out the missionary need. Um, we need to be men and women of prayer. And what we know is that we so often uh, buck against that. At least I know I can in my own heart. And so for self-denying, cross-caring followers of Jesus, this missionary need to be men and women who pray, it's upon this foundation that we must stand because of the danger that I alluded to last week. It can be very easy for the people of God to attempt the work of God apart from the Spirit of God, to do it apart from the presence of God, the provision of God. Surely you guys know this. Maybe you've been in churches like this before. There's been times and seasons, and you see it in church history, where it's the people of God rally together, they do plans, they put schemes and strategies together, and then what we do ultimately is bank on the fact that we have schemes and strategies, and it's just by the mere dint of us having schemes and strategies that this is how the work of God will go forward. But then it's usually met with hardship and not a large harvest and all these things. We're like, well, what's going on? Because it's very easy to trust in ourselves and our schemes and our strategies to assume that if we're just doing, we can do the work of God and assume the work of God will just take place if we're trusting in ourselves. In, in the book of Revelation, the church of Sardis was this kind of church. Known for doing a lot, but he said, but you've forgotten one thing. You've forgotten the power and the need for the Spirit to blow his power into the sails of these things. I don't want to be that kind of church. I want to be a church that is the people of God doing the work of God, 
total reliance upon the power of the Spirit of God, the provision of God, and the presence of God. That's why we took the time before getting here in a sermon where we are going to talk about things like, this is what we believe God has called us to do. Here, This is a work of God kind of sermon. But before we ever got here, we needed to back up into the past three weeks and say, man, if we are not leaning on the need of missionaries to go to the Lord and say, man, your presence first, provision second in prayer, then we will be guilty of a Sardisian kind of deceit and we don't want to be there in this place. So if we're going to be compassionate laborers like Jesus is laying out before us in Matthew chapter 9, then we must first be prayers, that is people who pray. We see this modeled in Matthew's gospel. Even if you just scan back and you, you look at the totality of the gospel, chapter 1 to, to chapter 28, what we see is this first need to pray and then this command to go. If you remember, some of the most famous words arguably in the book of Matthew are the closing words of Jesus in chapter 28 when Jesus gives his great commission. Remember what he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, and here's the command, the action, the work of God, the people of God are to be about. Go make disciples of all nations. Go make disciples of all nations. But notice that way before the go of chapter 28, we see first the pray of chapter 9. So Jesus is ordering these things for us. Be prayers before you are goers. That kind of idea of what's going on before us. So when you smush all these things together, what we see is that this praying and this going, they are a both and. We're not just to be prayers apart from goers. We don't want to be guilty of being goers apart from prayers. Just because we first lay the foundation of prayer does not mean that we should do nothing but pray, but it does mean that we should do nothing without praying. And thus, the missionary need, the focus that we've had for the past couple of weeks. So with all this said, the question before us is this. Okay, so if we've been looking at this Matthew 6 idea of being prayers, and then now Jesus is going to start to call us to pray in very specific ways, how do we build on this foundation of prayer? The missionary need of God's people is the foundation. What kind of structure gets built on top of that foundation? That's the the question before us, and I think the answer comes down to this. How do we build on the foundation of prayer? We do this. We march forward with a missionary mindset. So what is the mindset of a missionary? That's a phrase you're going to hear me say several times here in a few minutes. It's a question I've been asking myself. How do we go about as mommies and daddies? How do we go about as children? Married, not married. In school, out of school. Workers, neighbors, people with hobbies, baristas that serve us stuff, the lady at the grocery store we meet all the time, these neighbors we have in the various neighborhoods, what does it look like to live with a daily mindset that looks like the mindset of a missionary? That is a phrase that has been on my mind now for multiple months, a phrase I've been trying to wrestle with and think through and ask the Lord, like, biblically speaking, like, what, what should, what could, what ought this even look like? And today, I want to try to smush these things together, looking through the lens of Matthew chapter 9, by recognizing that marching forward with a missionary mindset, 
What is this? It's a mindset that not only prays for compassionate laborers to be sent into the Father's harvest, but recognizes that we are ourselves the answer to that, own pra- to that, to that very prayer that we pray. So if we go back in the last year, like I was just saying, if you want to roll back, probably into the back, about to the middle of 2022, and so maybe even a little bit before that, but working forward definitely from the middle of 2022, even going all the way up to that week that Charles and I got to spend um, in London doing that like scouting trip, that vision trip in London, going there, just trying to wrestle through like what, what is going on there in London? Like we want to go there and partner with them. We're partnering with the local IB missionary. He's showing us a handful of different churches and ministries that are at work there on the north side of London. So let's go there and like, let's, let's see not only how can we come and give of ourselves so that they might receive, but a key uh, thought in Charles and I mind was what can they give so that we might receive, trusting that if the Jesus family is truly the Jesus family, we can also learn and we can also benefit so that as we go and serve them, they are mutually serving us, and there's this beautiful relationship going on together. And again, all of this was being couched in that idea of a missionary mindset. And I've been wrestling with just what does this look like for us? What does this look like for this particular Jesus family? How do we describe it? How do we define it? And I'm, not, I'm talking as individuals who've got individual spheres, individual fields of influence in our lives. But what does that mean on a larger scale, on a collective scale for our church? Recognizing that our church exists in a spe- very specific geographic latitude and longitude. We have a corner, Outer Park and Cherry. This is our place. This is our community. This is our neighborhood. This is our parish, so to speak. And what does it mean for us to, in a collective sense, begin to go, we don't want to approach this place as renters, but as owners. We're going to own this neighborhood. These are our neighbors in a very real sense of the word neighbor. So Lord, will you make clear, what does this look like? What could it look like? What should it look like? And it was just God's absolute kindness to be able to go on this vision trip because we were going on this vision trip knowing that we wanted this to be a potential opportunity not only for folks of Delta but for people of the larger association of churches that we belong to in Sangamon County but to also go there and, 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 and find avenues of ways of being able to do overseas missions but there is this sort of nagging th- uh, question in the back of Charles I'm like, Lord, like, like, are you doing something here? Can we find an answer to this missionary mindset question? And as I said, the Lord was overly kind to make abundantly clear the answer to that question. Now, if you would have asked me this, John, you're going to go overseas. You're going to work with the IMB missionary. This is before you've gone on the trip. Uh, there's probably a reason why this specific missionary is going to go and show uh, you potential partners, these four, five, six potential partners. John, there's probably a reason why it's them and no one else. Why, why do you think you're going to go see them? These particular church plants, some working with collegiate ministries, some working in impoverished boroughs of the city of London, some working with internationals who are um, um, immigrating into London, all different kinds. Like, why them? Like, what are they doing? What's unique to their situation where the missionary says, you, you should be partnering with these, these people? 
What are they doing to reach the lost? How are they going about being gospel evangelists? I would have said, I don't know. I mean, surely they're doing something. There's a reason why it's these six and not the other 600. So surely there's something there that we should see. But I didn't have an answer. I was clueless. I'm, I'm positive they're doing something, but I didn't know what they would be doing. And I think for Charles and I, just again, the various conversations we had, what we saw surprised us because I just assumed they were all doing separate random things and God was blessing those separate random things. But what we found in a very encouraging way and what we found in a very challenging way was this. They were all basically doing the same thing. I just don't know why that surprised me, but it did. Just caught me off guard. And what they were doing was encouraging because they are seeing genuine harvest come out of the harvest. You're going to hear me say in a little bit, uh, they're in a very post-Christian, very almost pre-Christian kind of culture. People ain't drifting into the churches over there in London. This isn't church transfer growth. This is genuine, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I'm see. Through the evangelistic labors of these churches going out into the harvest, pastoring their parishes, shepherding the souls of people around them in various ways, the Lord of the harvest is reaping genuine souls into the kingdom through the labors of these people. And it was just like, man, like, wow, like this, uh, they were just doing the same things. They were using phrases like this. They would often say, we go out into the neighborhoods, and what we begin to do is this. We begin to care for people by prayer. What caught us off guard was it was straight-up old-school evangelism. Hey, it's me and Charles. We're in the church in your own neighborhood. How can we care for you through prayer? Door knocking. I was like, okay, that was like probably on the list, like the millionth and one thing I probably would have put on there. Surely there's some fancy strategy. Surely there's some great skill they're employing. Surely there's some newfangled novel idea. No, they're like, the harvest is out there, so we're going to go out into the harvest. This is where people are. Hey, we're here today. We're your neighbors. We want to care for you through prayer. And what caught us off guard in that regard is, one, they were doing that, door knocking. Some of them do surveys. Some of them are working specifically with collegiate uh, uh, campuses, universities. So they do a lot of surveys with students. But it's always the, this is a long-term thing for us. But the difference is, because some of you might be thinking, well, I mean, like the church has tried to do this before, and this is sort of an epic fail. I mean, the, the cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormon, they do this. One guy was like, man, why should they have all the fun? He's like, we're going to go out and do it. We've got the truth after all. I was like, okay. These guys are thinking in ways that we're not thinking. And so they go out and they go start talking. The difference is, was this. In their approach, it wasn't just, I'm here so I can blast, vomit, a 30-second gospel presentation in your lap, feel good about myself, check your name off a list and go and never see you again. There was a genuine, we are going to shepherd the souls of these people. We're going to pastor this parish. If it is true that they are men and women created in the image of God, and if it is true that they have eternal souls, and if it is true if they die apart from Christ, they will stand before Christ in judgment, and if the blood of Christ does not cover them, they will pay the penalty for their sin justly, and then they will spend an eternity in hell separated from God. It is obvious that in their lostness, they do not have a care for their soul, and it is obvious that if we do not have a care for their soul, no one's going to have a care for their soul, and we're not okay with that. 
And so we're going to systematically think of a way that makes sense with seasons and people and group and, and the seasons of the year and all these things. But we're going to recognize we need to go to them. They are no longer going to come to us. We've just got to do this. So we're going to care for them through prayer. That was their entry door. They used this language. This Saturday, we're going to go out harvesting, they would say. And I was just like, okay, like we don't talk like that. And here, door knocking, surveys, we're going to pastor this parish, we're going to shepherd souls with long-term mentality. They were using a similar set of tools, tools that are familiar to us. They said there is this mindset of no place left. They said, we want to bring meaningful access to the gospel to people. Meaningful access, meaning this, we don't want them to know I'm a churchgoer. I don't, I don't want them to know I'm spiritual. I don't want them to know that I'm a Bible reader or a prayer. I want them to know that I'm a follower of Jesus. And then as a follower of Jesus, I want them to be able to have an opportunity to hear the gospel explained to them clearly. And then I want to present the opportunity to be able to do, they use language similar like what we do, to walk with them from unbelief to belief, discipling them along the way, recognizing that we want to sow the seed of the gospel generously. They're leaning on that parable principle. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. We don't want a sparing harvest of souls. We want a 30, 60, 100-fold harvest. And so we're going to sow generously and trust that the Lord of the harvest will reap souls into the kingdom. We want no place left. And insofar as it's up to us, we will think through what it looks like to go into our communities individually and collectively as a church so that we can say truly no place is left that has not heard the gospel. And then they have overly practical training. Training that they call four fields, training they call 411, and those I know are terms that don't mean anything to you, but they will mean something to you soon, as you will hear at the end of the sermon. They were using familiar tools called three circles. Does that sound familiar to you guys? Anyone who's gone through the distinctives class will have had exposure to this evangelistic tool it blew me away I, I just never I don't know I just I guess that I, I was just us doing that kind of stuff They're like no we we use this tool if you remember three circles God's design brokenness Jesus the gospel they said that second circle of brokenness they're like that's the lingua franca of prayer knock 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 me Dan local church in their neighborhood today we're not here to get anything out of you we just want to know how can we care for you by prayer full stop period we're not trying to convince you to come to this thing. We're not trying to get money from you. We're not trying to grow our church. We genuinely want to care for your soul by prayer. And the beauty is if you listen to prayer, the lingua franca of prayer is brokenness. Have you ever noticed that before? I'm not saying it can't happen this way, but rarely is the case. Hey, how can I pray for you? Actually, blessings are pouring out from heaven. I've got nothing wrong with my life. Everything is great. It's high fives and puppy dogs, and it's just phenomenal. That happens sometimes. A lot of times prayer is like, man, you can pray for this. Uh, my wife has cancer. My grandma is sick. I just lost my job. I'm suffering from this sickness. I've got strife relationally with my children. That's brokenness language. And what we know from brokenness in the scriptures is that brokenness is here because of sin. And then all of a sudden, what they do is they begin to listen. They begin to be led by the Spirit. They're leaning on the Holy Spirit in those moments, trusting that as those people begin to speak, that they can then turn the corner and go, can I ask you another question? 
That's not what they're first lead into, but just as the time comes, would you say you're far from God or near from God? I'm far from God. Would you like to be near? Some people say no. Some say yes. All these are little gospel doorknobs. <laughs> jiggle, jiggle, jiggle. Nope, nothing there. Jiggle, jiggle. The door open. Can I show you how you can be near to God? Yes. Gospel doorknob, door open. Have you ever considered the brokenness of the world, how it comes from sin? This isn't God's design. But the brokenness and destruction and the separation and the judgment we deserve for our sin comes to be reconciled in Jesus. And if we repent and believe in Jesus, trusting that through his death and resurrection we can have eternal life, we can be restored to pursue God in his design. We can be saved. We can have eternal life. We can be resurrected unto newness of life. We can go from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. Has anyone ever shared that with you? No. Meaningful access to the gospel. Long-haul marathon mentality. We're, led, we're shepherding these people. Blew me away. Encouraged me and challenged me. Encouraged me because God was harvesting people into the kingdom through the labors of these Jesus people. Challenging because we, Delta, are not doing that. We're not. As a shepherd, just thinking it through, we had not led our church to consider what does that look like? What could it look like? What should it look like? These brothers are pastoring in ways that encouraged and challenged us. What it comes down to is this, the London Jesus family, they had a missionary mindset. This is why they were going about the work of harvesting like they, like they were, like they are. They've rightly assessed their situation. They see very clearly that in North London, where they are at, this is not a Christian culture. The days are gone when if someone wants meaningful access to the gospel, the assumption is you can hold some kind of event or do some kind of thing and that people will flock through the doors of the church. That is just not the case over there anymore. They've rightly assessed this. We just heard this language. We're in a very post-Christian culture, multiple decades into a post-Christian culture. Some of them in the spheres that they are working in, whether it was with internationals or with university students, they're like, we're in a very pre-Christian culture, almost Book of Acts kind of culture where it's like, Jesus, they're like, Jesus who? And they're not being facetious and they're not playing, feigning ignorance. They're like, literally, like, we don't know about who you're talking about. And so they recognize that if we are going to live as missionaries and go out into the harvest, which is plentiful, then what we are going to do is not only rightly assess, but then through the right assessment of the times in which we live, we're going to honor and obey and take Jesus at his word, and we're going to go forward and do this. Now, the thing is that when I was thinking about the missionary mindset, trying to wrestle with what this looks like, going over there and being able to experience what we experienced in London, coming back, in the midst of all, the Lord was just sort of just giving me like this, this word picture in my mind that sort of at least helped me process how do we think these things through because this idea of a Christian culture not being there in London but being in a very post slash pre-Christian kind of culture, I would argue it's very same for us here in our context. We're maybe not as deep into the post-Christian but they have disabused themselves of this idea. 
that we are living, like we're just one, one shade, one degree shy of a Christian. And if we can just do a couple of key things and swing back the culture into a Christian culture, that's not the case, and they're not thinking in that way. And I think one of the things that can lull us to sleep in our context is if we labor under the, the idea, labor under the illusion that, you know what, like we are a Christian culture, and we are just going to do Christian things and expect those who are far from God just to come in because we're doing Christian things, I think what we must do is dis abuse ourselves of that idea because that kind of idea reverses it to where if you think we're just mainly a Christian culture, just a, a degree shade, shy off kilter one way or the other, then you will think in certain ways where you're just like, man, we just need to get people back towards this Christian culture. But the scriptures, I think, show us that we when we have a missionary mindset, what we do is we go out into the fields, we go out into the harvest because we recognize rightly that we are missionaries and the missionary mindset is this, they don't need a program. We're not trying to get them into a Christian culture. They are post, they are pre in our context and we want to share the gospel with them, model it for them. But when we go out into this context in which we find ourselves assuming one thing when it's actually the other, it can lull us to sleep in this. So, for instance, this is the imagery that came to mind. It was this idea. If I were to say, uh, hey, uh, church, we're all going to go overseas. We're going to go to Sierra Leone, Chance and Ginger. We're going over there. We're going to do um, a mission trip with them. They've got a mission trip coming up here in a couple of months. We're all going to go, go with them. When you go overseas, like I'm talking about, just think about this on a purely like natural level. I'm not even putting like spiritual stuff on there. Think of it in a purely natural level. If you go overseas to a place that is not your home, very physical things serve to amplify the fact that like, I'm a sojourner here. I'm a pilgrim here. Your skin color may look different. Your language, different. Culture, different. Values, different. Music, different. The way you think, different. It's very easy to look around and see like, man, this is not my home. This place is a foreign place to me. It serves to amplify, lay on top of the spiritual reality, that if you go over there, the physical, not my homeness of this place serves to magnify the spiritual, not my homeness of the situation, and then it's very easy, many of us have experienced, to go on an overseas mission trip and just slip right into a missionary mindset. Because this isn't my home, because this place is a foreign land, I'm a spiritual foreigner, and in my spiritual foreignness, I want people to know the gospel, you think like a missionary. So reverse that. You come back home. Why is it so easy for us to slip out of a missionary mindset? Well, it's because like, well, in general, people sort of look like me and think like me and talk like me and speak like me and believe like me and laugh at jokes like me and listen to music like me and live in a culture like me and watch the movies like me. And all those things can sort of blunt and dull. And then we begin to go, well, they probably believe religiously like me. And then all of a sudden, the missionary mindset, blunted, dulled, and gone. If we're not careful, we assume that because most cultural, cultural touch points are the same, that we're spiritually okay. But here again was the thing in London. London is a very cosmopolitan city. London is a very diverse place. And so there's a measure of both and here. But what you saw was this. You saw men and women in various churches working among college students, working among the impoverished, working among immigrants, working among 
just Londoners in general, who said, while there might be cultural touch points that are the same, where they're the same, we will approach our parishes, our communities, our neighbors with a missionary mindset. And they put stuff in place and they began to walk forward from there. You see, when we miss this, the result is that our eyes can grow dim to the harvest. And this is why the words of Jesus in our text this morning are like such extremely good news. Because Jesus is showing us, he's going to teach and he's going to model for us what a missionary mindset looks like. So if you just take this text and you divide it in half, what I think we can do is take what I've just said so far and what we can do is look to the scriptures and see, man, like what Jesus is teaching us here has direct application to what we've just been talking about. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to divide the text in half. We're just going to take a, a couple of minutes here. We're going to expose the text to us. We're going to get wet with the water of God's word so that we see that what has been said so far is actually something I think Jesus is modeling and instructing us in. So if you divide the text in half, the first thing we see is this. We see the deepest compassion of Jesus. We see the deepest compassion of Jesus. If you look starting in verse 35, that's the language on the lips of Matthew describing Jesus. Jesus went throughout all the cities, villages, teaching in synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, healing every disease, every affliction. When he saw the crowds, here it is, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 35 is the summary statement. It's just simply giving an overview of what Jesus was doing. He's going, he's teaching, he's proclaiming, he's healing. But notice in verse 36, Matthew tells us what was going on as Jesus was doing this. As Jesus was going, teaching, proclaiming, healing, we are gifted a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. The curtain of his heart's pulled back. We get a little glimpse. His systematic approach of, I'm going out to the people, I'm going out to where they are, I'm going to go through all the cities and villages, meant that as he went, he saw numerous crowds and numerous cities and numerous villages, and notice he never lost sight of their condition, and it was their condition which pulled back the curtain of his heart, revealing deepest compassion for those whom he was around. Because they were harassed and helpless, this is their condition, harassed and helpless, Matthew tells us Jesus had compassion for them. This was his reaction. This revealed his heart towards those he was around. Ultimately, this is just what good shepherding looks like. What you see here in front of Jesus. The harassedness and the helplessness of these shepherdless sheep was met with, go fix yourself and come back and then I'll take care of you. That's not what happened. It was harassed and helpless. My deepest compassion is gushing forward towards you now and shepherding looks like me having compassion on you in this situation. Not until you get yourself out of the situation. The danger there for us is we can see lostness like this, yeah? Harassed, I mean, if you knew my neighbor, harassed, helpless, shepherdless sheep, this defines him all day long. And if we're not careful, we can, our hearts can just be sort of twisted in on themselves. So we're just like, man, I'm going to stay back a little bit. That's a mess. That's dangerous. I don't want anything to do with that. But Jesus models for us. It was actually their condition which drew him in and revealed 
pulling back the curtain of his heart, revealing the deepest compassion you could ever find for harassed and helpless sheep. The harassness again and helplessness of these shepherdless sheep was met with shepherding. And according to Jesus, who is the good shepherd, shepherding looks like deepest compassion. Why? Because ultimately, Jesus saw the heart of the problem. It's important to understand that their harassment and helplessness was not the result of poor external conditions. It's important to see that. There very well could have been poor external conditions, but the harassment and helplessness that Jesus sees and witnesses in the crowds over and over and over again was not the result of poor external conditions. Ultimately, it was the result of sin. Men and women created in the image of God? Absolutely. But also men and women who are separated from God by their sin and who would one day stand before God receiving just judgment for their sin if nothing changed. This is why Jesus had compassion for them, stirred in his heart and moved in his guts at the suffering he saw due to their sin. Their plight released a pent-up flood of deepest compassion from Jesus. That word there for compassion is a very funny word. It's the word splanknon. And it means guts. It literally, Jesus seeing the harassedness and helplessness of the crowds in their sin, shepherdless sheep who had no one showing them where to come and find the food and water of eternal life in him, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. It not only has this implication of man, his emotions were drawn to them, but it churned his guts at seeing how shepherdless they were, knowing that he is the shepherd of our souls. Now notice, just like Jesus modeled prayer for us, we saw this for the past couple of weeks, here Jesus is just modeling something for us. Key ingredients of a missionary mindset. So what can we learn? We can learn this. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. Thus, a shepherd goes where the sheep are. Jesus saw the crowds. The implication is that a shepherd has close contact with the sheep. He isn't distant but near enough to, to see them, to know he's, he's where they are. And in his proximity to the crowds, we're told that Jesus saw they were harassed helpless, sheep without a shepherd. Like Jesus, when face to face with the effects of sin, a shepherd takes glad responsibility to shepherd the shepherdless. He didn't see harassed and helpless and been like, oh man, that, that shepherding business is a little... A little too much. No, he's the good shepherd. It drew him in. And he had compassion on them. Shepherding like Jesus flows from a heart like Jesus. A heart not indifferent to sinners and sufferers, but a heart drawn to them. Now here's the good news. Because if you're like me, you're hearing this and you're just like, sweet mercy. Like this isn't not, struggles-ville. I'm on the struggle bus. I'm the captain of this ship. Like this, this I, I need help. So here, here, I want you to hear this. Here's the good news. This morning, if your heart is cold with apathy towards the harassed and helpless around you, if you're like, man, like I find myself not caring about what you're talking about right now. 
If your heart right now is indifferent, like entirely indifferent to the harassed and helpless, if your heart is void of compassion, here's what I want you to know. It is possible for you, it is possible for me to have our heart brought into alignment with the good shepherd's heart. And here's what you need to hear. It's not by trying harder that you get this. It's not by being more disciplined. You don't go off and do more stuff to get this to happen to your heart. It's not by employing better strategies that your heart becomes more compassionate. What does it come by? This is not a rhetorical question. What does it come by? Huh? Holy Spirit, what did we learn over the past couple of weeks? Say it again loudly. Come on. Prayer. Thank you for not letting me down. I was going to throw in my resignation if the past three weeks had... Had failed. Yes, prayer. But more specifically, according to Jesus, point number two, what kind of prayer? Earnest prayer. Look at your chapter uh, 9, verses 37 through 38. Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, laborers are few. Therefore, here it is, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Changing imagery from the farmyard to the field, Jesus says these crowds of harassed and helpless are like a plentiful harvest. Farmyard illustration done, field illustration now in full effect. And in view of the abundant harvest, the need for laborers is great, Jesus says. It's just very common sense. Thus the command, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. What you need to know is that the Lord of the harvest is our Father in heaven. That's the Lord of the harvest. The Lord of the harvest is our Father in heaven, who we've been learning so much about in prayer. So now Jesus is here explaining. so, So stitch Matthew 6 and 9 together. Jesus teaches how to pray. Here is how to pray. Now I'm going to show you what to pray. Jesus does this very rarely. He very rarely says, put these words into your mouth and pray them to the Father. But this is what we see here. Jesus is showing us, giving us a glimpse into the heart of the Father. Pray for this. I'm telling you, the Father will answer this kind of prayer. Jesus is explaining what to pray. He's saying, listen, pound on heaven's door with the persistent petition for more laborers for his harvest. The idea behind the phrase pray earnestly is to beseech, it's to beg, it's to implore. It's to approach our Father with the serious and sincere conviction that as the Lord of the harvest, his harvest is going to be harvested. Do you see that kind of connection language? He doesn't say send out laborers into the harvest. He's like, no, this is my harvest. It is going to be harvested. And so I'm telling you to pray for more people to go out to do the very thing that I'm going to bring about. It's almost a guaranteed answer to prayer. Do you see what's going on here? Like you will get the answer to this prayer because I am doing this thing. I'm inviting you into the beauty of being on the receiving side of blessed answer to prayer. It's to pray with certitude that while we plant gospel seeds, water gospel seeds, only God gives the growth. Thus, to beg the Father in prayer to send out laborers into his harvest is to confidently collapse upon our good Father who is always ready and able to provide. Listen, Christ's command to ask the Lord of the harvest for more laborers is the pledge that this prayer will be heard and answered. And not so oddly enough, guess what? It's as we pray this prayer that Christ's heart of deepest compassion soon becomes our heart of compassion. Now, an easy observation in this, harvesting is labor. Harvesting is labor. 
Notice Jesus doesn't pray. Jesus doesn't say, pray earnestly for vacationers. He doesn't say, pray earnestly for tourists. He doesn't say, pray earnestly for spectators. He says, pray earnestly for laborers to be sent to the harvest. Listen, friends, shepherding souls, it's, it's work. Gospel agriculture, it's, it's work. Breaking up hard heart soil, sowing gospel seed generously, pulling the weeds and rocks of sin, spreading the fertilizer of prayer. It is all work. It's labor. I'm talking about like just even in our own homes. And all the parents said, amen. It's work in the workplace. It's work in the neighborhood. It's work in the apartment complex. It's work at the CrossFit gym. It's work with the barista. It's work in the grocery store. It's, it's labor. It's something we are called to do, the work of God. But notice that Jesus says this is our part. As God's children, our Father in heaven has redeemed us for this service. But because it is our God who ultimately gives the growth of salvation. Listen, we go as restful laborers. Restful laborers. Laboring to sow gospel seeds in the fields of our homes, neighborhoods, places of work but also resting like an Illinois farmer who goes out in the springtime, tills the earth, plants the seed, spreads the fertilizer, then what does that Illinois farmer do? He goes home and he goes to sleep. He goes home and says, like, my job here is done. I'm now going to rest in what? The fact that the plentiful harvest that's going to come in the fall isn't going to come by me. It's going to come from the Lord of the harvest. Spiritually speaking, the concept that every one of us here sees every spring and fall is the exact same spiritual reality that Jesus is inviting us into. Friends, it's for these reasons, and this, this, this is done. We're wrapping it up. I just want to put a couple of things in front of you. It's for these reasons that this year we must be everyday disciples who take collective evangelistic action. We want to be everyday disciples who take collective evangelistic action. I think one of the biggest fears in my own life as a Christian, just like you, is that I will be a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. I'm a champion hearer, not doer. Collectively for our church, I don't want to wake up 20 years from now and go, man, we were phenomenal hearers and phenomenal not doers. I, I don't want that for me as a family member of this family. And I don't want that for us. So what you need to know is that we're going to call our Jesus family to training in ways that make sense. We're begging God to raise up a small core group. I understand that not everyone's going to be able to do what we're planning and thinking of doing. 
I know not everyone will be able to go out and go prayer walking sometime during the week. I know not everybody will be able to go out and go knock, knock, knock. I know not everybody will be able to do this. But I'm praying that God will raise up a small core of some who will and can at certain seasons and times and kind of thing. And what I think would also need to be said is like even if it's just like no one does it, I've got to do it. I I just don't know how else the harvest is going to be reaped. I, I just don't know. I'm not saying I've got a corner on the market. I'm not saying I have, I have full understanding. I'm not saying what we're going to do this year is the end-all, be-all. I'm not saying it's never going to be tweaked. But what I'm saying is this. What we've done for the past 15 years of the life of our church cannot be the way we roll forward into 2023. Please do not hear me saying this in a guilt trip kind of way. I am not doing that. Do not hear what I'm not saying. Okay? Just know the conviction of my own soul as a follower of Jesus is like this has to happen in my own life. And I'm going to try to model what it looks like and just beg and pray that maybe God is doing this in the life of some others. So that we can model it and say what we are learning together can be done in your own home. It can be done with your literal neighbors who live around your house where you live. It can be done in your workplaces. We have fields ripe for the harvest wherever we are at. We're going to ask God, will you make clear what field do you want the collective footprint of Delta to be in? We have a field of a school. We have a field of apartments. We have fields of a neighborhood. It's not accident that we meet in this location. And so it's just asking, God, will you make clear what it is? And then we'll marathon this thing. We'll eat the elephant one bite at a time. We'll entrust the Lord. We'll run. We'll stumble. We'll fall. We'll wobble. We'll get up. We'll fall down. But just asking the Lord, please, will you raise up laborers among this Jesus family? And then we'll just walk forward laboring. And like a good Illinois farmer, go home and shove our head onto the pillow and rest and the sovereignty of the Lord of the harvest. Does this make sense? Amen. I am scared to death to say this in front of you guys. Scared to death. Because I don't want to say something and then be like, man, we tried it and that was hard. And ah, non-labor is easy. Yes, non-labor is easy. We're going to look at Matthew 10 next week. And Jesus turns around and immediately says, guys, I'm telling you to go out and do this. And then Jesus says, there's going to be persecution. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be trial. There's going to be trouble. People are going to hate you. You're going to spread. You're going to sow. You're going to farm. You're going to go out into the harvest. And you're mainly going to reap trouble and hardship. So we're going, we have to go into this with eyes wide open. And we'll touch on this next week. The missionary mindset isn't high fives and puppy dogs. We're going to go out, knock on 10 doors, and 10 people are going to give us the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? You're probably going to knock on 10 doors, get nine doors slammed in your face, and one person's going to be actually talk to you, but the way they talk to you is beat it, pal, interspersed with very other colorful language. The question is, is the labor still worthy? Is the labor still worthy? I'm scared to say the answer because that means something for us. But the answer is yes. 
And I don't, I don't want to start something that just flounders, and that's why it is easy for us to never start something, because if you don't start something, then it can't flounder. That's just a general life principle. So I'm just asking that you would be praying for your pastors, praying for your leaders, praying for one another in these things. Listen, I understand that this morning was a different kind of sermon. I understand it was a long sermon, but I thank you for being patient with me and hearing my heart on this. And I'm just going to ask that right now we pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers and then just entrust ourselves that this is the beginning of something awesome and something hard, but something good as we get to taste and see how awesome Jesus is as he grows his kingdom by pulling people from the harvest into his kingdom. Amen? All right, let's pray for these things, guys. Father, we thank you for doing this great work. You, Father, are the Lord of the harvest. You are good and gracious. You are kind you're in the business of saving the lost. You're in the business of doing what we cannot do. We cannot reap the harvest of hearts far from you. It's got to be you. Lord, would you raise up a core, a small core, maybe a tiny core, of those among this Jesus family who say, I, I see this and, and I I'm there. The Lord's been working on me in these ways as well. And so we just begin to march forward, continually leaning on the Lord in prayer, continually lifting up others, praying for neighborhoods, asking the Lord of the harvest to bring in a harvest of men and women. And then we just get to sit back in glory at the 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold reaping that the Lord does through our oft-times puny, <laughs> puny measures. Lord, would you give us a gladness of heart in these things where we have fears and worries and anxieties. Lord, would you calm them? Lord, bring us to trust and rest ourselves upon you in the entirety of the thing. It's in the name of King Jesus, I pray. Amen.